0: At this time, I invite you to open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1, you'll find that on page 1,912 in your pew Bibles. We are going to be reading verses 1 through 20, essentially the entirety of the chapter. But we are going to focus primarily on verse 8 this evening, as we discuss God's eternity. So again, Revelation chapter 1, reading the entirety of the chapter. Hear now the word of the Lord. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. John, the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits before his throne and from Christ Jesus, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom and priests, to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him, so shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, and who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. "'Dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. "'His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. "'His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. "'In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp, double-edged sword. "'His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. "'When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead.' And when he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid, I am the first and the last, I am the living one, I was dead and behold, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades, write therefore what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later, the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Thus far, the reading of God's word. May He bless it to our hearing this evening. Eternity. Eternality. Time. Concepts that we sort of have a grasp on and yet things that scholars and theologians, philosophers and sophists have filled thousands and thousands of pages and hundreds and hundreds of books with their ramblings and musings and every possible thing you can think of to talk about time. And yet, as we just sang, we fade and die like flowers, like tender grass. The book of Ecclesiastes talks about the extension of time, of life, as vanity of vanities. The most vain thing that one can do. Amazing that we as creatures, bound by time, have a God that is so eternal that what is the one thing we look forward to? One thing that He says, do this and you will have it. We look forward to eternal life. interesting that we who are finite creatures are promised with eternity. There are many people and many scholars that debate whether or not God's eternity is a communicable or an incommunicable attribute. I'm not here to argue one way or the other on that. I'm not going to get into the whole philosophical and theological things, believe me, If you want to go read it, I can recommend a half dozen books for you to read them. I've talked with many pastors and many theologians and have asked, when you speak of God's eternity, when you talk about God as eternal, like it does in the Belgic Confession, like it does in the Heidelberg Catechism, when we speak about our God, when we talk about the Alpha and the Omega, what do we even mean when we say that? It's very easy to say the Sunday school answer. Well, Alpha and Omega, He's the beginning and He's the end. But at the same time, that Sunday school answer for many of us is still too awesome for us to comprehend. When we say that God is the beginning and God is the end, how do we even cope with that? We are finite creatures. We talk about a baby born in Bethlehem, we talk about a Christ that dies on the cross. And yet, that's just the earthly ministry of Christ. And yet, that's not even the earthly ministry of Christ because he comes back again. We have a God who transcends our concepts of what we talk about as time. So our theme for this evening is the eternity of God is displayed through Christ as our eternal Savior and Lord. The eternity of God is displayed through Christ As our eternal Savior and Lord. Now you notice I don't have the whiteboard behind me. Just wanted to make sure that you guys aren't comparing my handwriting to Carrie's. So (laughs) we're going to go through. We're going to talk through three points though. We're going to discuss the question of God's eternity. What is God's eternity? We're going to discuss Christ as he displays the eternal nature of God. And then we're going to speak of the benefits of an eternal God, the eternal benefits of an eternal God. So, the question of God's eternity, how Christ displays the eternal nature of God, and then the eternal benefits of the eternal God, sort of taking a, a, a page from the Heidelberg Catechism. What's the benefit of having an eternal God? What's the, uh, how does this benefit us? But the first question that we must ask is God's eternity. What is it? What's he like when we talk about the eternity of God? Well, first of all, this is unique to Christianity. When we talk about God and some other concept of, say, Islam or uh, Buddhism, or even when we talk about all the ancient mythologies, God is quantifiable. God is quantifiable in an ancient mythology as the God of this or the God of that. They are contained within an idol of some sort. In Buddhism, we talk about God as, well, it's this understanding of Brahman, that all is God. And that there is just this material and immaterial thing that we can't really display properly. In Islam, it's just that which is higher, that which is unattainable. He is the king and therefore cannot be tainted by a creation. And yet, unique to Christianity, we have an eternal God that is both personal and condescending. We have a God who is eternal and yet personal and condescending. Article 1 of the Belgic Confession says that the only God, we all believe in our hearts and confess with our mouths that there is a single and simple spiritual being whom we call God. And what is the first attribute that is listed? Eternal. then, an incomprehensible, invisible, unchangeable, infinite, almighty, completely wise, just, and good, and the overflowing source of all good. But the first thing they state is God is eternal. Now notice how his eternality is separate from his infinity. There are two different things. When we talk about God's infinity, his infinity is his incomprehensibleness. But when we talk about his eternality, we specifically talk about it with respect to time. Our problem is, we are people that live in time, are bound by time. All of our concepts are understood through time. We joke back and forth, I'm getting old. Well, how do you know you're getting old? Things don't work like they used to. It used to be easy to get out of chairs. And now you've got to get up and go, oh, okay, now I'm up. Even I, in my 30s, am realizing that I'm not who I am in my 20s. It was really easy for me to just get up and ref a soccer game without a problem. Then I could get up and do it again the next day. My dad is sitting here in the congregation. He knows that every time I come home, I am so beat after refereeing a soccer game that I go straight to bed. Because I am exhausted. I used to be able to run five miles and it wasn't a problem. Now I run five miles and I feel it for the next two days and I'm going, what in the world happened to me? I am bound by time. But we have a God that transcends all concepts of time. We like to think of God as maybe a temporal, that he exists somewhere where there is no time. There's a famous YouTube clip on Facebook, or sorry, there's a famous YouTube clip Um, where an atheist, uh, an atheistic professor, discusses with a young earth creationist, and he asks the simple question, well, where did God come from? What was God doing before the creation of the world? And the young earth creationist, to his credit, goes, well, you're thinking about this all wrong. You have to think of something in the concepts of time, space, and matter. And if God is bound by time, space, or matter then he cannot be God. Because if he's bound by time, that means he has a beginning and he has an end. And that which is beyond that, time, means that time would be greater than God. If he's bound by space, if he can be held in by a certain area, that means there is a space where there is not God. And therefore, space is now the limiting factor of God, and therefore, he wouldn't be God. And if he were made of something like the idols of old, well, then he could easily be malleable. We could make that God into what we wanted. And then that God would not be God, but rather a God of our own design and a God of our own choosing. But yet, when we look throughout all of Scripture, we know that God is immutable, He cannot be changed by the whims of man. We know that God is infinite. He cannot be bound by the concepts of man. And we know that our God is eternal. He cannot be understood within the time frame of man. In fact, how does our Bible begin? When the Word of God reveals who God is, it doesn't start with, before the eons of creation, God is this. It starts with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, time, God created. Time exists because God created. God doesn't come from an era with no time because he is beyond that. He is personal, he is condescending, he understands and loves because he works within time. But we know that he has existed before time. Psalm 90 gives a clear picture of this. Psalm 90, especially in verses 2 and verse 4. Unfortunately, I lost my bookmark. But Psalm 90, a prayer of Moses, in verse 2, says, Before the mountains were born, you brought forth the earth and the world. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. In verse 4, For a thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by, or like a watch in the night. We have a God who is from everlasting and to everlasting. We have a God whose concept of time does not match our own concept of time. And that in and of itself is very disturbing for us because, and as I've been spouting around here for the last five minutes now, it's very difficult for us to even grasp this. It's very difficult for us to use words to speak about something that is beyond the concept that we literally work with and live with every day. We see the sun rise and we see the sun set. We have a morning worship service and an evening worship service. We talk about Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. We talk about what we're going to do next week. We're going to talk about the hopes we have for next year. On the last service of 2020, when we talk especially about time as the calendar is about to tick over, it seems to be all the things we can think of. 2021 is coming. It can't possibly be as bad as 2020, right? Knock on wood, right? But we have a God who is so much more than that. Louis Burkhoff in his systematic theology tried to grasp it in a similar way, and maybe this will help us understand it. His eternity may be defined as that perfection of God whereby he is elevated above all temporal limits and all succession of moments and possesses the whole of his existence in one indivisible present. The relation of eternity to time constitutes one of the most difficult problems in philosophy and theology, perhaps incapable of solution in our present condition. So even Louis Burkhoff is telling me I've bitten off more than I can chew. But when we think about God, who is and who was and who is to come, when we think about God in that language, first of all, it boggles the mind. But second of all, it shows that the almighty power of God is not limited to what God can create or what God can sustain or what God can providentially care for. No, the power of God is such that he comes in and enters into time. He is the author of time. He will exist after time, just as he has existed before time. But how does Christ display this? When we talk about Christ displaying the eternal nature of God, how in the world does Christ... Does Jesus Christ, a babe who was born in Bethlehem, who died on a cross, who rose again from a tomb, who ascended into heaven, very clear, temporal things, how does he picture, display, demonstrate the eternal nature of God? Well, Jesus Christ, who is God incarnate, verifies his deity and his eternality, especially to the people of his day, when he declares in John 8, Before Abraham was born, I am. Right after that, they picked up stones to attempt to stone him to death. And yet he hid from them, and he was able to escape after that. But people ask, well, why would they pick up stones if he's just saying, Before Abraham was, I am. So he's saying he's old? No. When he says the words, I am, a go, a me. He is saying the words, don't you people get it? You want to talk about being descendants of Abraham? You want to talk about being the children of Abraham? Guess what? Before Abraham was, I am. I am the eternal God. It's clear that Jesus was claiming to be God in the flesh. Because the Jews, upon hearing this statement, tried to stone him to death. To the Jews, declaring oneself to be the eternal God was blasphemy, worthy of death. Jesus was claiming to be eternal just as the Father is eternal. The Apostle John also declares this truth in our passage this evening. But also in John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and nothing that was created was created without him. Jesus and his Father are one in essence. They exist without time. And they share equally in the attribute of eternality. We see this very clearly put out to us. In the words of the Athanasian Creed. Such as the Father is, such as the Son, and such as the Holy Spirit. The Father uncreate, the Son uncreate, the Holy Spirit uncreate, the Father incomprehensible, the Son incomprehensible, the Holy Spirit incomprehensible. Article 10, the Father eternal, the Son eternal, and the Holy Spirit eternal. Yet they are not three eternals, but one eternal. As there are not three uncreated or three incomprehensibles, but one uncreated and one incomprehensible. So likewise the Father is almighty, the Son is almighty, and the Holy Spirit almighty. And yet they are not three almighties, but one is almighty. So the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit of God is God. And yet they are not three gods, but one God. You see, it comes down to the very heart of our theology. The very heart of of our creed. Article 10, when we talk about Jesus Christ being the true and eternal God, we state as part of our confessional standards in this church, we believe that Jesus Christ, according to His divine nature, is the only begotten Son of God, begotten from eternity, not made nor created, for then He would be a creature. But coessential and co-eternal with the Father, the very image of his substance and the effulgence of his glory, equal unto him in all things. He is, not the Son of, he is the Son of God, not only from the time that he assumed our nature, but from all eternity. As these testimonies, when compared together, teach us. Moses says that God created the world and St. John says that all the things were made by that word which he calls God. The apostle says that God made the world by his Son, likewise that God created all things by Jesus Christ. Therefore, it must needs follow that he who is called God, the Word, the Son, and Jesus Christ did exist at that time when all things were created by him. Therefore, the prophet Micah says, his goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. And the apostle, he hath neither the beginning of days nor end of life. He, therefore, is that true eternal and almighty God whom we invoke, worship, and serve. You see, the meaning of eternality, especially when it comes to Christ, is that he displays the nature of God by interjecting himself into time and saying, first of all, he is God, and all the concepts that we have had previous of God, speaking especially of Psalm ninety. Isaiah 7, Isaiah 4, and the like. All of the things that we would think of as qualities of the Father also apply to the Son. You see, if the eternality of Christ is denied, well, then quite simply, there is no trinity, that Christ cannot possess the full deity, and therefore is incapable of being our Savior. But rather, eternality means not only that Christ has existed Before his birth, and in fact, there are many of us of the theological ilk that would say that many of the theophanies of the Old Testament are a picture of Christ actually interjecting himself before he is born. But that, or even before creation existed. But that he has always existed eternally. According to Ryrie's basic theology... Usually eternality and pre-existence stand or fall together. And even though Arius taught that pre-existence, the pre-existence of the Son, he didn't teach us eternality. He insisted that if Christ was the only begotten, he must have had a beginning. Jehovah's Witnesses today have an Arian-like Christology, which denies the eternality of the Logos, the Word. Arius for those of you who would like a brush up on church history, um, was when the Council of Nicaea came together in 325 AD, it's where we get our Nicene Creed from, that was the question that was being asked, who is Christ? How do we define who Christ is? And Arius was teaching something different. He was teaching that Christ was a tertium quid, a something else, a third thing. He wasn't created... But he wasn't God. He was something in the middle. He was a firstborn. He was the firstfruits. He was designed to be a savior. That's how he kind of got around the problem. And as the funny story goes, St. Nicholas walks forward and slaps Arius for his heresy and says, you have no idea what you're talking about. Yes, that is actually the same St. Nicholas that we believe brings gifts to children on Christmas night. So an interesting story for your theology nerds and church history nerds amongst you. But when we talk about Christ displaying this eternal nature, it's very difficult for us to talk about the eternality of God, especially displayed in Christ. And yet talk about how Christ was also human. How do we understand one who is completely God and completely human and yet has no concept of time? We talk about one who is born, who grew in stature and in favor with both God and man. We talk about one who was, when he was 12 years old, was in the temple speaking and teaching with God The chief priests and the teachers of the law, one who had parents, one who left those parents, who became a wandering preacher, who died on a cross by the hands of a Roman governor. These are all temporal human things. But yet without those things, He could not have been our Savior. And yet without the eternity of God and His existence before all things, without Him being the Word, the Logos, by which all things were created, He also could not have been our Savior. This is the great question. The one that was attempted to be answered in the Council of Nicaea, and the one that we... Even probably, as Dr. Burkhoff has said, probably don't understand even fully at this time and could be in our non-glorified minds a question that is too great to comprehend. Yet when we discuss... Christ as our Savior. The benefits that we have cannot be experienced unless he is eternal. You see, when we talk about eternal benefits of God, we must also talk about the eternal effects of sin. Because without one, there cannot be the other. The eternal nature of the punishment of sin is not due to the means of the offense, but it is due to the nature of the offense and the one that that offense offends. You see, it's very easy for us as people to talk about how we can justify sins. I talked about it extensively this morning. We justify our sins. We lower the bar bit by bit by bit, to take that giant, unattainable hurdle and make it as low as we possibly can so that we can walk over it without ever possibly thinking about it. But when we truly look our sin in the eye for the ugly, black, disgusting thing that it possibly and could ever be, we realize that our actions in time have offended not a temporal God, but an eternal God. And so the effects of sin are not just a temporal issue, the effects of sin have eternal consequences because the lawgiver is eternal. But praise be to God that we have an eternal Savior. You see, the effects of an eternal Savior is such that that sin, that thing that happens here and now, that is a blot on our record for all time and all eternity, is now washed away. And it's not washed away merely because, well, Christ died on a cross 2,000 years ago, and from then on, Things have been taken care of. We have a God who is eternal. And so before the foundations of the world, we were chosen. So that the death of Christ could be applied. So that the effects of grace would not be something that could only take effect when Christ died in 33 A.D. But that all the Old Testament saints, that when we hear of David, we hear of Joshua, we hear of Moses, and we hear of Abram, we hear about the prophets, Elijah and Elisha, they were not dependent upon their own good works. They were looking forward to the promise of the Messiah. Because the Messiah was already there. Job, one of the oldest books that we have. Job cries out, I know that my Redeemer lives. And I shall stand against him at that day. You see, the eternality of The blessings of Christ is that there is no expiration date on our salvation. Not just precursor, but in the future as well. There is no possible way we can lose our salvation. We have a Christ who lives now and continues to live and is seated on the right hand of the throne of God because whenever we mess up, whenever we miss the mark, whenever we fall short of the thing that God has said, this is the standard to attain. Instead of being lost, instead of being hopeless, Instead of being racked with grief, we have an assurance of pardon that there is now no condemnation to those who are called according to the purpose of Christ Jesus, our Lord. God's word is eternal. We see that in 1 Peter 1 and Isaiah 40 and Mark 13. In Psalm 119, over and over and over again, God's word does not fail. (coughs) God's word endures forever. And his faithfulness continues to the ends of the ages. God's promise is eternal, that is, his covenant extends. We can see that in Psalm 105. In Isaiah 24, in Isaiah 54, in Isaiah 55, the suffering servant who washes away the sin of the world. And the greatest thing of all, that God's kingdom is eternal. Daniel 4, 2 Peter 2, or 2 Peter 1. Even Nebuchadnezzar's vision in Daniel talks about that rock that encompasses the whole world. Revelation 20, we see a king of kings and lord of lords who rides out on a white stallion who conquers the foes of God, where his enemies become the footstool. You see, that is our hope. That is our future. That is the benefits that we have in Christ. And that is all the more reason why we need to proclaim the gospel in season and out of season. When it's easy and when it's hard. when we speak about an eternal God whose son came down, who didn't have to and yet because of the great love, he came down and was born of a virgin, born under the law. He lives in this broken and sinful world so that we have a high priest that can sympathize with us. Who knows what it's like to feel pain, to feel discouragement, to have depression, to have a heart that breaks over and over and over again. And yet this is also the God who says, let the little children come to me. And do not hinder them, for such is the kingdom of heaven. This is the God who says that Jesus Christ came into this world so that whosoever should believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life, eternal life. You see, the eternal benefits of an eternal God are such that our death, even in this world, as, it, as we see it maybe as the end of our time, but it's not. It's merely a passing of one life into another. From a life that is broken and hurts, where there's sin that affects us, we now break off from this temporal existence and we have an eternal life. Where no tear is shed, where no cry is heard, except for the cry of, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. You see, God fills time. He's in every part of it, but as eternity is still not really this being in time, it's Rather, that to which time forms a contrast, according to Dr. Orr. Our lives might be divided into past, present, and future, but there is no such division in the life of God. But the great hope for us is that we have a past, we have a present. But we have a future beyond that which we already know. With golden streets. With things so incomprehensible that even John's language and revelation come short of what he was truly experiencing. If you don't believe me, look at our passage this morning in chapter 1 where he talks about the one who is like a son of man in between the golden lampstands. Even John can't come to grips with some of these things. And he was the one that saw them. And so John uses the language here in Revelation. when He talks about the 144,000, the multitude, the seas of crystal. The wonders that he gets to experience. And he writes all these things down and he says... This is as good as I can come up with because it's so wonderful and so incomprehensible and that is eternal life. What are the eternal benefits of an eternal God? John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son, that whosoever should believe in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. As we go from this place tonight, as we try to wrestle and comprehend with the eternality of God, as we try and philosophically and theologically, and maybe you might not even think of it after tonight, but when we try and think about what it means to have an eternal God, when we read about it in the Belgic, we read about it in something else, let us first and foremost understand that our God is eternal. And as such, he can also give the eternal blessings of salvation, of peace, and eternal life through his Son. Amen. Let's pray. Almighty, eternal and heavenly Father, we come before you as sad temporal beings in this world. We hear of how amazing, we try and grasp how incomprehensible you are and yet when we talk about you according to your time, Words fail to grasp. But Lord, we also ask that we may not see this as though we have all the time in the world. But that the blessings and benefits would drive us to preach the gospel all the more through our words and through our actions. That our neighbors would know that our coworkers would know, that those who even pass us on the street would know, that you are King of Kings and Lord of Lords, that you are God eternal, that Jesus Christ, your Son, offers eternal life even to them. For, Lord, we don't know who you have called, but yet preach the gospel. So that those who have been called may come. Lord, we ask that you would be with us as we leave and go upon our homeward way. This we ask in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. At this time, I invite you to rise and sing Celebration Hymnal number 686. Number 686, O God, our help in ages past.